We are talking once again with Job Parrish and Maria Tomchik, local writers and activists, here to give us a wrap-up of this past year's news. Good afternoon. Good, Good afternoon. afternoon. I laugh because normally I'd say past week's news, but um, for those that were here last week and or have been listening regularly, know that we're uh, in the midst of our year-end wrap-up of uh, over hyped Overhyped and underreported. There you yeah. Go. Yep. Or you could think of it as the uh, most important stories of this past year. Well, especially the most important stories that didn't get adequate attention in exactly. the media. Which, you know, that that almost uh, never went when it was down the list for most important. But, um, yeah, this year was particularly bad for media coverage and media non-coverage of important stories. Mm-hmm. You know, because – because we had the midterms, we had the war in Ukraine, we had Donald Trump's foibles, and that basically was the year. It drowned out almost everything else mm-hmm. except for the, you know, monthly – uh, once in a generation climate, climate event that, you know, that usually. They're happening on a po- weekly basis. <laughs> pretty, yeah. Pretty, pretty much, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Buffalo had two once in a generation storms last, this month alone. Mm-hmm. How does that happen? Anyway. Bad scheduling. We just need better, uh, uh, scheduling software. And there's an app for that. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, there is. All right. So um, last <laughs> week we covered local over-reported, no, over-hyped, under-reported. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and this week it's national and inter- international. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who would like to dive in and begin the process? Well, I for over-hyped, I want to, want to talk about the political and or legal death of Donald J. Trump because people have been anticipating that – you know, X scandal or Y scandal is going to lead to his indictment or is going to lead to his being not politically viable in the Republican Party. Pretty much since he announced in 2015, but it's really ramped up this year as the legal pressure on him is ramped up. Um, and we keep hearing that, well, people in the Republican Party are distancing themselves from Donald Trump. Well, the base is more enthusiastic about DeSantis now. Um, you know, and, and he announced for president and nothing's really happened and he hasn't had any momentum. He's still raking in hundreds of thousands of dollars in contributions. He's still very popular amongst the Republican base. That makes him politically viable, you know, un, uh, unless he is imprisoned and maybe not even then. I mean, he could break Eugene Debs record for, for number of votes gotten for president from prison. Um, uh, and break it easily. But, um, you know, uh, there, there is no evidence as yet that his stranglehold on the Republican Party has lessened, uh, even though he keeps losing, his candidates keep losing, and he keeps getting into legal trouble. But we're gonna keep hearing about that until he gets indicted. Yeah. Oh, and probably well after that. Because there's there's still the kids out there, <laughs> yes, carrying on are. his work. So. Yeah, they they might get indicted first, actually. But yes, let's move on to the underreported stories. Yeah, there's a lot of them. Yeah. Um, I want to start with COVID nineteen, which 
we are still in the middle of a pandemic, even though it was declared to be over this year. People may not remember, but last year, this past year started in January with the emergence of the Omicron subvariant, um, which uh, led to some 70,000 deaths in the U.S. alone in January. Uh, we had nearly 200,000 from the pandemic this year. And, you know, it, we're still at about 16,000 a month. So, uh, that to me is that's well, five times nine eleven every month, every month. But we're not even hearing about it. And you know, uh, half of Americans did not know that there was a vaccine out that covered Omicron and the other subvariants. Now we have what is called a super variant that the CDC just announced this week. Um, it's been spreading for weeks and weeks, but the CDC didn't catch it somehow, or at least didn't report it. Uh, so it's now about 40% of infections in the U.S. It's called XBB15, which, you know, sounds like a robot, but <laughs> it's not, uh, or, you know, a car model, but, um, it's a, it's a, called a super variant. It is more evasive than past variants. It is also more infectious. And has, uh, more, it's more evasive of vaccines, I should say. Um, so this is very concerning. We don't know yet whether it is, uh, more virulent. That is to say, the outcomes are worse. We know that, uh, currently the death rate is concentrated among seniors. Um, even though, uh, there, there are treatments now that are, have been reasonably effective. Um, those treatments are shifting as, of course, the variants shift and what is effective for each variant shifts. Um, so, you know, we're not hearing about any of this and, and we've been getting messaging from public health officials as well as from politicians that the pandemic is over. And it's just been grossly irresponsible media coverage. You know, how does half of America not even know that there's a vaccine out there that will protect against COVID and previous vaccines aren't particularly effective against COVID uh, anymore. And even if you were vaccinated in the beginning of 2021, you no longer have coverage from that vaccine. You need to get another one. It's, it's like a flu shot. Um, And I I also want to point out, too, that uh, a lot of the folks who are not getting vaccinated are the people who are at most risk of dying from COVID-19. And that includes pregnant women. And there's still so much of of the vaccine misinformation is centered around, oh, it will, you know, make you have a miscarriage. Oh, it will, you know, affect your your baby in some way. And that's all not true. And And a lot. Not getting of, vaccinated when you're pregnant is can can lead to your death or and or the death of your baby if you get COVID nineteen and that's just not been talked about and it's not been publicized enough. Yeah, and I would add to that that a lot of the misinformation is targeted at communities of color, um, you know, both uh, you know African American, uh, you know, Spanish language misinformation. Um, and those are the communities that have been hardest hit by COVID-19 as well. So, and we don't fully understand why other than, you know, racism in the American healthcare system, which is, you know, sadly almost a given, 
but you know there's also a lot of suspicion of uh, of authority figures in those communities uh rightly so but that has extended to public health authorities and you know we're seeing today is the last day that Anthony Fauci is a federal employee and he has been <coughs> excuse me he has been a relative voice of of perspective and honesty uh throughout the pandemic and he is going to be sorely missed um because the the Biden administration figures that have been leading the uh uh pandemic response or excuse me it's according to the Biden administration it's not a pandemic anymore um have been just incompetent you know the messaging has not been there and you know people think it's all over they're not masking they're not getting vaccines you know the vaccination rate for the booster that came out in September is only about 30% in the US that's much much lower than in any other industrialized country. Um, you know, the the response both by the American government, the American media, and the American people has just been terrible. And we're at now 1,080,000 deaths since the beginning of 2020. And, you know, we haven't even begun to have any kind of reckoning with that. So what was what was first on your list, Maria? So first on my list is um, something that's more of a regional thing, but it kind of extends to national. Uh, the states of California, Washington, and Oregon this year all banned gas-powered automobiles by 2035. Uh, in California, California first passed that that those first issued those rules. Uh, saying that they want 35% of new cars sold in California to be zero emission by the year 2026, which is not that far away, and 68% or two-thirds of them by 2030. Then uh, later in the year, Washington State Governor Jay Inslee announced that our state would follow California's lead and ban the sale of gas-powered automobiles by 2035. And then finally, late in the year, just in November, Oregon joined onto that mandate too. Also, yeah. three and, other and states. And that's. Oh, wait. Can, can I finish? Oh, sure. Go ahead, sir. Also, uh, three other states announced that they would follow California's lead, Massachusetts, New York, and Vermont. And then a dozen other states have committed to following California's emissions laws, as we do here in Washington state, which means that about a third of all Americans are subject to this new standard. Um, Transportation makes up the largest chunk of greenhouse gas emissions in the United States, so this is really big news. The next step, of course, is for the EPA, the Federal Environmental Protection Agency, to roll out a ban on gas-powered vehicles, which would apply nationwide. And they say that they are currently working on a set of rules right now. And then finally, I want to point out that notably, the United States' two largest car manufacturers, GM and Ford, have set their own goals. GM expects to be ending the production, all production of gas-powered cars by 2035, and Ford has committed to spending $50 billion to produce electric vehicles by 2026. So that's, I think, the year's top good news, and it made the top of my list this year. Yeah, and that that overlaps with uh, an item that I had. Also, it was a it was a I think it was an inflection point this year for addressing climate change. We're, we didn't see the kind of action at the scale we need to see it, but we saw movement in that direction. 
And, you know, all of the items that you mentioned are part of that. Uh, Congress's passing the Infrastructure Act was part of that. It, it wasn't, you know, what it needed to be, uh, thanks to Joe mentioned, but it was still, uh, still poured a lot of money into renewable energy. The EU made movements in that direction at all as well, uh, particularly because of the war in Ukraine and the, the cutting off of Russian natural gas, uh, you know, the, the pipeline to, uh, to, uh, Europe and, and there was also a sabotage of that pipeline, uh, which, uh, you know, uh, moved Germany in particular to, uh, to trying to find more renewable sources of energy. There were several major international, uh, elections this year that with changes of government that uh, were good news for climate change. Uh, Germany was part of that. Uh, the Australian government changed from one that was a climate denier to something that has made climate change a priority. Australia has been uh, almost uniquely vulnerable to climate catastrophes, especially wildfires and droughts. Um, so they're already being badly affected by climate change. And then the change of government uh, late this year in Brazil, uh, which, again, uh, deforestation is a major concern for climate change. And uh, deforestation was happening at a very rapid pace under the previous Bolsonaro government. And that has uh, ground to a halt under the new government of uh, Luiz da Silva. So uh, those are all good, good news for climate change. Uh, we're moving in the right direction. It's too late to avoid really catastrophic climate change. But it could be so much worse if we don't do anything. Yeah, and I think also underreported under under climate change is the fact that I, I think a lot of times the uh, the media tends to focus on either the super negative or the super positive instead of really talking about where we are in terms of addressing it, which is kind of right down the middle. So we're not headed for the worst case scenario. But we're not headed for the best case scenario either. We're headed in this direction where we're addressing it, but we're going to feel some major effects of climate change in the process. And it's going to require us doing a lot more things than we're doing now, but we're not totally ignoring it. So so there's some room for hope, but there's also still uh, quite a bit of, of, of uh, incentive there to keep moving in the right direction to address uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And I think yeah. it would be a whole lot better if the media could give us a picture of where we are on a much more regular basis instead of simply talking about, well, if nothing is done, if nothing is done, and the worst case scenario or the, wow, this could solve, this new technology could solve all our problems, the best case scenario. Yeah. And those are not I, really I helpful. Would, I would say that almost all of these items, uh, something that they all have in common is that media does not give us context. You know, yeah. we get the breaking news or we get the horse race coverage of an election, but we don't get the big picture or we don't get the history. And that, you know, that's something that um, or even a particularly realistic picture of where a particular technology or where a particular solution actually fits into a broader uh, range of solutions that we're going to have to do all of them, not just the one or two. Yeah. You know what I'm and, saying? 
And, you know, on a related front, I would say, you know, we haven't gotten any context for the fact that we're getting once in a generation climate catastrophes almost every week now, if you look globally. And even within the U.S., it's, you know, we're, we're, we get something almost every month this year. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and. Well, that, it's to the point where it's a couple times a month, but yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we, we're not. I, I have not seen an observation in mainstream media that the pace of climate catastrophes is increasing, um, which it obviously is. There was it used to be there was maybe once a year that there would be or a couple times a year there'd be a really bad hurricane. Uh, this year we had a historically bad hurricane and Hurricane Ian. It was Ian. It was the second most damaging hurricane in the the history of the U.S. and you know, uh, much of Southwest Florida is still uninhabitable because of that. And that's another underreported item that I had is the aftermath of that hurricane has, has been its own disaster in terms of the federal and especially the state government's response and helping those people who were displaced by the hurricane. Um, you know, we, we've heard almost nothing about that. So <laughs> it, you, you really have to look at local Florida news to find out anything about it. So. Yeah, that's that's on the list too. Yeah. And that's that and that is a that the strength of that storm and the rapid intensification of it before it made landfall was a direct result of climate change in the warm waters in the Gulf of Mexico. Mm-hmm. So my uh second and third items on my list are about the Supreme Court this year. These were items that were reported, but I don't think they were reported uh, properly, or I don't think aspects of them were reported that should have been. Now, uh, earlier in the year, this the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that presidents are not above the law in the case where Trump was uh, suing the January 6th committee and the National Archives to keep his White House documents out of their hands, saying uh, that he was uh, that that he had executive privilege. Okay. Now he lost in district court and then he appealed and lost in the appeals court. Then he took it to the Supreme court and the Supreme court came back and ruled in record time that he didn't have a case. And so 700 over 700 documents were released to the January 6th committee. Now the Supreme court ruled that because the appeals court had decided that Trump would lose on all counts argued by his lawyers, every single count argued by his lawyers, then his case had to be completely dismissed. In other words, their ruling on his executive privilege actually means that Trump would have lost the case even if he were still president. Right. And uh, in other words, being president wouldn't have saved him in this case. And, uh, it really was, it really was a way for the Supreme Court to say presidents themselves are not above, above, uh, the law. Okay. And that included all of the justices that he appointed to the Supreme Court. And I think the only one who dissented was Clarence Thomas. There's a shock. Yeah, there's a shock. Now, my third item on the list relates to the Supreme Court as well. It's the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade. And a lot of folks right. talked about, you know, reproductive health care and, you know, women being set back 50 years, et cetera. I think it sets set, sets women back more than two generations, actually. 
there's been very little reporting on what the impact actually is on women in states that have banned abortion um, and that have banned women from traveling to other states to get abortions. Um, you know, the, the actual human cost of that has been lost in the reporting. Um, it's all been political. And yeah. that's really sad. And not not much has been talked about uh, the fact that Samuel Alito opinion he wrote the the majority opinion on this case alito's opinion was based on uh uh the fact that abortion was not mentioned in the u.s constitution which was ratified in 1788 over 230 years ago yeah electricity wasn't mentioned let let me finish let me finish that philosophy known as originalism is uh deeply conservative it is deeply destructive, not just to progress, but to our modern way of life and to the rights of women, minorities and uh, children, the elderly, to just about everyone who is not a white man in our in our society. And I think that that aspect of this decision was just not covered at all. Agreed. Yeah, it. it I mean, it's it's a very definition of reactionary, um, but it's reactionary to the last 220 years of human rights progress. Yeah, well, to over 230 years ago. Yeah. yeah. So the the whole idea that that you can overturn something that's been settled law, and in fact, at least two of the justices who voted. Uh, well, three of the justices, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Coney, and Amy Coney Barrett, uh, had told Senator Susan Collins and had indicated that they thought Roe v. Wade was settled law. Okay. That, the fact that they can turn around and overturn settled law, uh, and pretty much, pretty much just say, okay, you know, we're from the upper class. You all are from low, from lower, ca- from lower caste, you know. You're going to have to live by our our rules now is, I think, just uh, horrendous and was not really fully covered. Yeah. And those were all of Trump, all of Trump's nominees <laughs> in the nomination and and, uh, you know, Senate approval process lied about their opinion. Uh, Pretty much. Yeah. Paid. Yeah. They just did. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah. you know, is not surprising because that's probably part of the vetting process that Trump used. I want you to wait. I want you to lie about Roe v. Wade. Yeah. So fourth on my list, uh, one one thing that hasn't been covered a whole lot as the media talks about how the Republican Party is swinging to the far right is that a number of folks who would ordinarily be uh, members of the Republican Party have run and been elected as Democrats. And we really saw that the impact of that this year on the missed opportunities within the Inflation Reduction Act bill that was passed by Congress. That was the big environmental and health care bill that Congress passed this year. And the missed opportunities really break down into two categories. The first category is that it contained no expansion of the social safety net to match what other developed nations already have. So things that were originally in the bill that got tossed because of the conservative Democrats, particularly in the Senate, Kirsten Sinema, and Joe Manchin, who would ordinarily be considered Republicans, but they had to run as Democrats to get elected, right? Um, 
these conservative Democrats force the Democratic Party to toss things like comprehensive child care coverage, uh, low income housing, new low income housing programs, paid family leave programs. Uh, there was no expansion of Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act to cover low income people in states with Republican governors. That's 2.2 million people who have been left behind and left out of the uh, Obamacare uh, expansion. Uh, there was no expansion of Medicare to cover vision, dental and hearing services for the elderly to keep them cognitively healthy into their old age. And no plan for home-based care for the elderly or for folks with disabilities. Those are all things that you see in most other developed nations, but not here in the United States. And then the second category of, um, were you going to say something, Mike? Oh, I was going to say, and that was um, with uh, being able to look back at our uh, reaction, the U.S.'s um, reaction to COVID pandemic and clearly see that those people that you mentioned, those groups you were mentioning, were the most devastated by not having health care access. Yeah, you know? that the pandemic really exposed how those folks, yeah, how yeah. those folks are living without any kind of a, 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 a health care safety net at all. Yeah, and we, we have done really no kind of reckoning with how the U.S. botched it so it could be a pandemic response. We just yeah. haven't thought about it because we didn't want to. Yeah. And uh, the second category of items that were missed opportunities in the Inflation Reduction Act was that it contained none of the progressive tax measures that would have addressed income inequality in the U.S. So no repeal of the 2017 Trump tax cuts, which which benefited the rich almost entirely rich people, no increase in taxes on the rich and corporations. Uh, the bill did contain a 15% minimum corporate tax rate, but then Kirsten Sinema forced the, forced the Senate to add back a bunch of loopholes or at least one very, very important loophole. Uh, and there was, there was uh, no provision to close other tax loopholes for the rich, like the carried interest tax, which had been talked about early on in the process, or the uh, special tax treatment for private equity stock, which was also discussed in the negotiations. So most of those items were completely left out of the bill. Uh, so two huge missed opportunities, uh, primarily to get uh, primarily in order to get those two conservative Democratic senators, Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin, to vote for the bill. And as I've said, you know, just after the after the elections this year, Kirsten Sinema promptly left the Democratic Party and declared herself an independent. Really, she would love it, I'm sure, if the Republican Party kind of swung back to the center and became, you know, the mainstream conservative, reasonable conservatives that they've been in the past uh, and not the these far right proto fascist um, uh, uh, divorced from reality folks that they currently are. Yeah, but it also but I think but I think it also kind of proves that in this whole process, the Democratic Party has moved far away from their original base of low income Americans. Their their base is now tech tech billionaires, oil and gas companies, thanks to Joe Manchin and uh, major corporations. Yeah. And I, I would I would also say that the, the fact that you have to raise so much money 
to run for federal office now has, um, you know, really encouraged people from uh, upper middle and upper classes to run to the exclusion of almost everybody else. Uh, because, you know, those are the people who can operate in those kind of circles. Um, it takes so much money and it takes, you know, pretty much 24-7, 365 fundraising in order to, to get in office and stay in office. Um, that, that, that's how that's he a, gets someone like <clears throat> Joe Biden as yeah, president. That is, that is a failure of our political system. End of story. So, um, yeah, second on my list. Um, you know, we heard a ton this year about what happened on January 6, 2021. Uh, the investigations of that are ongoing, of course. Uh, the January 6th committee will be coming to an end in the House of Representatives when the Republicans take over in three days. Uh, but there are two major questions about what happened in, on January 6th that seem to have completely gone down the memory hole. Um, actually, there's probably more than two, but there's two that I've been focused on. One is how on earth did a crowd of angry armed protesters storm the Capitol so easily? You know, the Capitol Police, I mean, that is normally the most secure building in the United States. There's literally dozens of federal agencies that have jurisdiction in, on the Capitol grounds. Um, where were they on January 6th? They, were they told to stand down? Um, because the, the police presence that was there was really nominal and the police officers that were there were really hung out to dry by their superiors. Um, there was plenty of public notice that it was going to be a large and, uh, uh, potentially violent demonstration. I mean, I knew it, and I have no special insight or intelligence. I just pay attention to the news. Um, so, you know, what what happened that there was, was no protection of that building? Somebody told them to stand down, and we don't know who. Um, I can take an educated guess as to who it might have been. Um, you know, somebody in the Trump administration, um, uh, most likely Trump himself initiated the process to make sure that the intelligence that uh, the FBI, Homeland Security, all those agencies that were getting about this demonstration was not acted on. Um, that's one open question that we haven't seen uh, any kind of reporting on or uh, conclusive investigation of. The other is, who was complicit in the January 6th planning um, and helped let demonstrators into the building or help them scope the building among congressional Republicans? We've seen uh, reporting that suggests that several people, uh, notably Jim Jordan, Marjorie Taylor Greene, folks like that, um, were involved in January 6th planning and helped uh, give you know, tours ahead of time to uh, uh, potential rioters. Um, but we haven't seen any kind of conclusive reporting on that. It wasn't in the January 6th committee uh, because most of those people refused to testify, even though they were subpoenaed to do so. And and there haven't, haven't been any charges against congressional Republicans, as there have not been any charges against most of the people who are planning the coup. Um, you know, that... Uh, Two years on is just inexcusable. But, um, you know, hopefully we'll get that later this year. But, um, you know, the, the January 6th committee, uh, 
you know, came out with its final report last week. And that was really kind of underreported, too, because at this point, people have been uh, inured to it because they've been hearing so much about it for so long. And there really hasn't been any conclusive, um, you know, uh, indictments or trials of people uh, who were involved in the planning. Um, I, I think the, the final report kind of landed with a thud. thud. People were saying, oh, yeah, we, we kind of knew that. Um, and so the, the sheer scope of it, uh, of an attempt to overthrow the U.S. government led by the president, then president of the United States, um, the sheer magnitude of that has been lost by repetition, which is kind, kind of a neat encapsulation of Trump's method. Uh, and the way he has survived scandal after scandal after scandal over the last seven years. Yeah. And so um, fifth on my list to to speak to what Jav said a little earlier about how you have to have so much money to run for national office is uh, uh, Marie Glusenkamp Perez proved this year that progressive Democrats can win in swing House districts without a ton of money. Okay. Perez won in Washington State's District 3 against uh, a Trump-backed Republican, Joe Kemp, Joe Kent, uh, who defeated the mainstream Republican incumbent, Jamie Herrera-Butler, in the primary. So it was obviously a swing district. Uh, and Perez won without the support of the National Democratic Campaign Committee. She's a working class woman who ran a successful grassroots campaign in a swing district without a ton of corporate money or the National Democratic Party behind her, and she proved it could be done. I, uh, I think she was helped by the fact that, that Kent was such so a Republican. And, yeah. and there was also serious questions about where his money came from, similar mm-hmm. to George Santos. Yeah. And what's interesting, too, this year is uh, with the new change in House leadership, uh, and that includes changes in the Democratic Party leadership in the House. Uh, here in Washington State, our District 1 representative, Susan Del Bene, who is a former Microsoft executive, she's been selected as the new head of the National Democratic Campaign Committee, which makes her the fourth uh, in, in the ranking Democratic leadership in the House. And the question, and it's an open question, is, is she going to be more supportive of progressive Democrats? in these in these tough races. I don't know if she will or not, but uh, it's hopeful that she's from Washington State, which means progressive Washington State residents can maybe get a hold of her office and put pressure on her mm-hmm. to support progressive Democrats who are running in in swing districts, but also progressive Democrats who are running against old guard Democrats, uh, because that's really important as well. So, the, yeah, so that was good news this year, I think. All right. Who's got the next one? Well, um, yeah, I, I thought that uh, Joe Biden had, by his standards, a very good year. But that, again, is not being well communicated. And it certainly isn't um, isn't reflective in his poll numbers, which, you know, still languish below where Trump was at the same period during his term. Um, which is, you know, amazing given that Biden has not had any particular scandals during his first two years in office. Um, and this past year, he got a lot of important legislation passed. Um, and, you know, was, was certainly effective in his response to the invasion of Ukraine. 
and a number of other international hotspots. Um, I, I think he's had a pretty good year, and um, you know, it it's proof once again. I mean, he's turned 80 years old, but he's um, at least the people he has hired are still doing an effective job. Yeah, and I want to add to that a little bit. One of my items that uh, Biden got a lot of flack this year about the economy, particularly inflation. And I just want to point out that the real cause of inflation isn't government spending by the Democrats. Okay, because that was sort of the implication that was behind a lot of stories about inflation and that it's important to look at what the real causes of inflation were this year. And I pointed out earlier this year, it's really four main things, supply chain problems that uh, that were exposed by the pandemic. It's really exposed the downside of our global just in time supply chain. Uh, and the fact that we had here, at least in the United States, over a million people, but globally, many millions of people who died of COVID and many, many more millions of people who were are being affected by uh, COVID long haul syndrome, that that's number two uh, in terms of the causes of inflation, the lack of new workers to replace retiring baby boom boomers and uh, folks who've been sidelined because of because of COVID-19. Um, and this is partly demographic, but it's also the result of uh, Trump administration anti-immigration policies, as well as the mismanagement of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, third, third reason of my four was high food prices brought on by crop failures caused by global changes in weather patterns. In other words, human caused climate change is making it a lot harder for food manufacturers to supply folks with the foods that they're used to seeing in the store and prices are going up. And then finally, and I think maybe the biggest driver of inflation is that major corporations have been raising prices to take advantage of increasing demand. Uh, In other words, corporate profiteering. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's been a lot of price gouging this year Mm -hmm. and very little attention paid to that. Yeah. So uh, that's often laid at the at the feet of Democrats and and the president in particular saying, why? Why aren't they rolling out more policies to address inflation? Well, the president and Congress really can only have an indirect impact on the economy and how uh, prices are doing and, you know, what interest rates are doing. Uh, But I would say that some of the policies that that they've been pursuing have actually been moderating inflation in some ways. Uh, the Biden administration has been trying to open the borders. However, the Republicans have been trying, tying them up in court, making it almost impossible for them to redo Title 42, which is the which is the uh, uh, laws, the anti-immigration laws that that Donald Trump put into place. Uh, and they've been trying to do other things to moderate price increases as well that have been having starting to have an effect, but it takes time. Um, I want to talk about um, uh, it was a very good year for cannabis legalization in the United States. 
um, we're starting to catch up with with Europe and Canada and and some other countries that have already um, gone in that direction. And of course, you know, states like Washington and Colorado and California and such that have legalized it. We've now got legalization in a number of other states. Uh, New York just started selling recreational cannabis, um, but uh, the Biden administration pardoned thousands of people in one stroke this past summer uh, who had been convicted of federal uh, laws uh, regarding cannabis possession. And, you know, that was a huge development that made a difference in a lot of people's lives. Um, but it didn't get a lot of attention at the time and certainly didn't get a, any kind of context or or reporting to the stories of some of those individual people and how those can convictions and prison sentences affected their lives for what is now considered legal in many states. Right. And then the next one on my list is uh, in a surprise year end vote, the same sex marriage bill passed Congress. Uh, it was uh, introduced in the summer. Yeah, after we, this. We, we have to have some good news on this list. Oh, yeah. Yeah. After the Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade and uh, Justice Clarence Thomas then said in that decision that gay marriage could be next. Uh, this bill was thought to be dead after months of bipartisan negotiations uh, in the Senate. But on November 30th, after the results of the November election were finalized, Congress finally uh, voted to pass a compromise bill, which repeals the Defense of Marriage Act. So that was very, very good news. It it requires states to acknowledge the validity of all marriages legally performed in other jurisdictions, thereby federally legalizing same-sex marriages nationwide. It doesn't require all states to allow same-sex marriages to be performed in them. However, that's part of the compromise bill. It just uh, means that all states need to recognize uh, same-sex marriages performed in other jurisdictions. Yes, so and it, there it is also, work to be done, but yeah. Uh, yeah. And it also allowed in states where same-sex marriage is, is not legalized, uh, legal discrimination against same-sex couples. That was, that was part of the compromise as well. So yeah, more work to be done. More work but to be done, yeah. It's, it's surprising how many of the items on this list actually were good news. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, 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 the cannabis, the, uh, the gay legalization, um, you know, it, it, the climate change, uh, progress. It's, it's been an encouraging year in that respect. And, you know, I think there's a systematic bias in media against reporting good news because bad news sells better. Yeah. <laughs> what, yeah, what, Maybe they can't put good news actually into context. Right. So, yeah. Jeff, what, what, what's next on your list? Um, the uh, humanitarian crisis at the U.S.-Mexican border uh, because of, uh, you mentioned earlier, the, uh, uh, you know, the Rule 42, the, the, uh, 42. the, the, the leftover Trump administration provision that prevents uh, people from legally seeking asylum in the United States because they are a public health menace because of COVID-19. Uh, and yet the U.S. government has declared the COVID-19 pandemic is over. So go figure. Um, but Republicans are still opposing lifting that, including conservatives in, in the court system. And, um, 
uh, people are languishing on the Mexican side of the border, uh, falling prey to crime and and uh, severe poverty, living in encampments. And, you know, they can't go back home because they they fled in the first place because they were at risk of getting killed by their, you know, uh, drug gangs or authoritarian governments. Uh, a lot of the people came from Central America. Um, you know, the, some of the, them, are, many of them are asylum seekers. Some of them are also climate refugees who left home because their uh, they their land is exhausted or, you know, the climate yeah. has changed so much that they cannot grow food or traditional crops. Yeah, Guatemala is in the middle of a severe drought, and mm-hmm. and a lot of people have fled for that reason as well. Yeah. Yeah. And here we are, in the United States, a severe worker shortage, and yet we can't uh, allow some folks across the border, uh, some asylum seekers across the border, to fill jobs. I it it boggles the mind. And they're yeah. a great responsibility for having caused the climate change in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, uh, we we can't let them in because they have brown skin, basically. Yeah, and they, that, that's they, really that's really what the opposition boils down to. Yeah, um, and they and they talk funny, mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, um, the 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 whole mess at the border. I think that's another example of media fatigue, where they just don't want to talk about it anymore because people have heard about it. They're not really that interested. Uh, some of the you know, uh, alarming depredations of the Trump administration, things like, you know, the the open air prison encampments, um, you know, those kind of things, the separation of families. Um, Those practices have ended. And what's going on now is not as extreme, at least on the U.S. side of the border. It is extreme on the Mexican side of the border as a direct result of what the U.S. is doing. But we don't hear about that. So. You know, uh, voters can't press for change because it's not a top issue for most people. So, yeah. Also on my list is uh, in May, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms released its first comprehensive count of the number of firearms manufactured annually in the United States since their last report in the year 2000. Oh, dear. More than two decades ago. In 2021, the number of guns in the United States has approximately tripled from 3.9 million in the year 2000 to 11.3 million. In that same 20-year period, the U.S. population didn't triple or even double. It grew by about 18 percent. How did that happen? I know. The increase has been driven largely by demand for semi-automatic handguns. Weapons that are uh, designed to kill people or provide a thrill at the shooting range, but are not designed for hunting or sports shooting. In addition, police agencies reported to the to the ATF that they had recovered 19,344 privately made firearms. And these are ghost guns assembled by their owners from kits or parts. That number is a tenfold increase from 2016. Not a doubling or a tripling, but 10 times the number recovered in the year 2016. In and Cal- a, lot, a lot of those are, are purchased online. In California, ghost guns are about half of all weapons recovered from crime scenes. Folks, um, ghost guns are assembled from parts, so people purchase the parts. 
uh, and they may purchase them from anybody, but the guns don't have serial numbers because, you know, they're made at home and some of the parts might be made by, by the folks who make the guns. Now, 2018 small arms survey estimated that there were 400 million guns in the United States. That survey is about three years out of date, so it's probably much more. But that's at least one gun for every man, woman, and child in the United States with at least 73 million extras left over. Okay. And I think, I think the distribution of that is important because, you know, a lot of those guns are in the same households. Uh, you, you yeah. have the phenomenon now of people, uh, collecting large numbers of guns. And, you know, not just a, I have a I have a six gun collection, but sometimes, you know, dozens of guns. Yeah. In one household. And, and, you know, when that happens, um, you know, chances get higher that one of them is going to get used. It just mm-hmm. is for any number of reasons. Or you're going to lose track of one is going to get yeah. stolen and, or or your teenage kid's going to borrow one and, and take it to school, mm-hmm. you know. And, and you're not going to know because you won't miss it. You have so many. Yeah. And, you know, we saw, you know, mass shooting after mass shooting after mass shooting in this country this year, um, which were basically committed by 19 to 22 year old white men. Um, and that just was the demographic that seemed to seem to be perpetrators in these shootings. Um, and and yet, um, you know, we don't. Uh, we our, our laws don't reflect that at all. And they then just, uh, the next item on my list was uh, severe wildfires damaging the ozone layer. A new study appeared this year in the journal Scientific Reports that found uh, that extreme wildfires can blow smoke 20 miles into the sky. They were looking particularly at the Australian wildfire season of 2019 to 2020. Uh, similar to a nuclear blast, uh, they can blow smoke so high that it ends up in the stratosphere. These dark smoke particles can cause warming of, uh, five in, in the case of the Australian, Australian fires, warming of 5.4 degrees Fahrenheit around Australia and 1.2 degrees globally for months afterwards. And that was the highest temperature in the stratosphere since the eruption of Mount Pinatubo in 1991. Smoke particles in the stratosphere also undergo criminal, uh, chemical reactions that erode the ozone layer and cause a large ozone hole to open up. In the case of the Australian fires, a large ozone hole opened up over most of Antarctica in 2020, the largest and longest lasting ozone hole in decades. And uh, they also pointed out that severe wildfires can produce massive clouds called pyrocumulonimbus events that can uh, create their own weather patterns and spew ash tens of thousands of feet into the air, well into the stratosphere. The McKinney Fire in the Klamath National Forest in Northern California this summer produced at least four such events in late July and early August. Um, And uh, it produced a 50,000-foot plume of smoke that could be seen from outer space. Unlike... uh, Normal clouds, which contain water vapor and tend to cool the earth beneath them, smoke plumes contain dark smoke particles that absorb heat and cause more warming. Uh, and when they reach the stratosphere, which is above where airplanes fly, they also can damage the ozone layer. 
And these large wildfire events are becoming much more common and scientists are becoming much more alarmed because this is happening, these large wildfire events, about 20 years earlier than climate scientists had predicted in their climate change models. Yeah, and something else that is bad for the climate that was on my list is war, which we don't think of as as a a climate change problem, but it is. There was a major war in the news this year, of course, the invasion of Ukraine. We heard a ton about that. Uh, But there were three different wars around the world that killed more than 10,000 people, mostly civilians, this year. Want to take a guess where the other two were? Well, Yemen isn't getting jacked for coverage. No, it's not. That was not one of them. Ethiopia was one, and Myanmar was the other. And... Uh, again, we don't hear much. I mean, there are at least a half dozen serious wars going on in the sub-Saharan African continent. Uh, Ethiopia is the worst of these, but we're not hearing about any of them. Um, and there's wars in other parts of the world, too. Um, again, the, the civil war in Myanmar is, is the worst of these, but we're not hearing about that either. And we barely heard about the persecution of the ethnic minorities in Myanmar um, that was being driven by misinformation on Facebook. Um, again, one of the one of the examples of social media that we think of as an American problem in terms of misinformation, but is a serious problem in the rest of the world as well. And uh, companies like Facebook and especially Twitter now um, just don't uh, police that because they don't have staff people who speak the language. Um, so it's been a huge problem. And, um, again, uh, this gets back also to media coverage in the U.S. basically doesn't exist unless we're bombing in the country in terms of global media coverage. Um, I had another item uh, this this year, actually this month, that is not getting nearly enough attention, which is the formation of the new government in Israel, which is uh, under uh, uh, Netanyahu, who may sound familiar, but in order to get a majority, he's had to bring in um, really proto-fascist uh, elements to his party and, and openly racist, uh, openly genocidal um, figures into his cabinet. Um, so and, and into important cabinet positions like overseeing uh, national security. So I think we're likely to see a serious escalation of violence in the Middle East in 2023. Um, and that hasn't gotten nearly enough attention in American media, even though Israel uh, often does figure in international news in this country. Okay, so um, the last item on my list is uh, the Trump organization being found guilty of tax fraud and Donald Trump's tax returns uh, being released to the public. Uh, those were big, big news items. And, uh, I don't think enough was said about the fact that these are felony, uh, crimes, particularly in, in, uh, the case of the Trump organization. Now, also, Trump's tax returns, which were released just over the past week, uh, looking at those returns, it's like a, a handbook for what you know, how not to prepare your return if you want to avoid getting audited by the IRS. There are just so many things in there that look suspicious. 
you know, things like related party loans to his kids, which look, you know, he's he's deducting interest year after year that he forgave them, which means he actually probably made big cash gifts to his kids that should have been reported as gift tax at, at, on a gift tax return. And he should have paid gift taxes on them. Uh, that's suspicious. And they appear on his returns year after year. He had 13 on his 2015 return. He had 13 Schedule C's with zero income and lots of expenses. And that's a red flag to the IRS that the taxpayer may be uh, trying to deduct ex- expenses from a hobby, not a real business. He had uh, his enormous loss carry forward that the IRS just doesn't have, obviously, the personnel to investigate and and to verify that that's that those are actual real business losses that he could take. He had unreimbursed business expenses of a shareholder, which really depends on the shareholder agreement. And the IRS didn't have the personnel to go back and look at the 400 more than 400 entities that he reported income from flow through entities that he reported income from and read through all of the shareholder and partnership agreements for those entities to determine if he was allowed to take all of those business expenses. There were questions about his active participation in some businesses. If it's an active loss versus a passive loss, he can deduct an active loss in the current year. If it's a passive loss, he can't deduct it until he sells the investment or sells the business. And he reported active losses during his presidency when he had all said that he was not going to be running his own businesses while he was president. His kids were going to run them. So that's a red flag. You know, and there's just more and more stuff. I I think it's a strong reminder and argument for never again allowing somebody to uh, become president Who's going to treat the presidency as a hobby? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But it's just, there's just a ton of stuff and that's just kind of scratching the surface, you know? Uh, so, I, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm just curious if you think that's, so that's going to get traction in uh, major media soon. Oh, no, it's not. They, cause, because major media doesn't understand tax issues. Generally, but uh, let me tell you, folks who work in tax are looking at this going, oh, my God, who prepared these returns? You know, it's exactly the kind of thing that that anyone who's a reputable tax advisor would tell their clients never do that. All right. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time for this week, but there will be next week. Mm -hmm. And uh, speaking of out of time, we're. Going back to a half hour weekly uh, starting in 2023 as opposed to the hour that we've been doing for – I'm not sure how many years now. Uh, three years through the pandemic. Okay. So that's just to keep us all from completely burning out. Yes. So, yeah. Because um, None of us is getting any younger. Let's just put it that way. Uh, un- unfortunately, we don't have that technology just yet. Mm-hmm. Or if we do, they're it's pretty much going to be people at the uh, 0.01% top that'll be using that. <laughs> yeah, well, mm-hmm. yes. Okay, so look forward to uh, hearing from you in the new year. Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, and uh, let's hope 2023 is good for everyone listening. <laughs>